Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have aspects, well, I, I love all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, I am very delighted to today host Dr. Adam Sifu, professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, and an educator, a book author, and a writer, uh, and a tweeter. Adam uh, has many opinions, but he is one of the biggest proponents of evidence-based medicine that I have known. And uh, look, I mean, you you know, I've said, I'm not going to really tape many episodes on COVID-19. And this is really not about COVID-19, but this is about evidence and evidence-based medicine. And I wanted really to have Adam reflect on his journey during the pandemic and what are the lessons that we learned and how did evidence-based medicine get integrated into some of the decision-making that we are dealing with when it comes to, when it came to the pandemic and other things. So I've asked him to come in. And frankly, um, part of the reason is I've noticed that some of his tweets, look, generate some trouble. And he asks about masking in airports, masking on planes, and he gets people trolling him and yelling at him. So I thought, what's better than have a long format where we host Dr. Adam Sifu on Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about why is he steering trouble and what elements of COVID-19 were things that we could really uh, implement based on evidence versus things that we just implement because we think they work. Well, before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Adam Sifu on 4th of July, 2022, I'd like to uh, ask you to subscribe to my podcast, to rate the podcast, and to write a brief review. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on my Healthcare Unfiltered YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And you can follow me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or on Instagram, Chadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter or by visiting my website at www.shadinabhan.com. Without further ado, Dr. Adam Sifu from the University of Chicago, an educator, a book author, and a clinician on Healthcare Unfiltered. Also, by the way, he is a host of one of the best podcasts I've listened to, Symptoms to Diagnosis. Make sure you check it out. Adam, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I know you just finished rounding your own service. We are taping on Independence Day. Just to level set, a couple of people still don't know who you are. I can't believe that, but maybe a little bit about you. Sure. Um, I'm a general internist. I'm at University of Chicago. I've been here since 97. I always say my wife and I moved out here then for three years for her to finish her training. And now we're going to die here. and um, I'm, I'm interested in patient care. I spend most of my time still doing that. Um, I enjoy medical education. I've done a lot of work in various roles in that over the years. And I don't really do research, but I think a lot about, you know, where medical evidence comes from and um, how we weigh what's right to be doing at various times. And that's really perfect what we're going to talk about. And I actually promised myself a while back, I don't want to do episodes on COVID-19. So this is nothing about COVID itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really about the lessons learned from what we dealt with. Because 
I need someone who is balanced. I need someone who is really can 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 say it like it is, and hopefully um, not in a political manner. So my first topic for today's podcast is about evidence. I think you are a big proponent of evidence-based medicine, more than me actually. I I'm a big proponent, not not of of real-world evidence itself, because I feel you know it's hard to do RCT for everything. What happened to evidence-based medicine in the era of COVID-19? How would you assess that? Yeah, boy, that's a tough question. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I think we're probably not that far apart on evidence. You know, um, clearly I've made a portion of my career um, both teaching and lecturing about evidence-based medicine and the importance of practicing um, based on evidence. But, you know, I'm also a doctor and I recognize that a huge amount, if not a majority of what I do, I'm forced to do without a robust evidence base, right? Um, and evidence-based medicine sort of by the book, you know, going back to the beginning is incorporating your understanding of pathophysiology with your clinical experience with the best available evidence from systematic research, right? Um, and so I recognize that you have to balance a lot of things. And then there are times that you absolutely, absolutely, you know, can never practice with robust evidence. We wrote about this um, in our book, the uh, Ending Medical Reversal book, where there are situations like, you know, dire circumstances or rare circumstances where you just don't have the luxury to, you know, wait for data. And in those places, um, you have to just say like, look, we're going by the seat of our pants, we're doing what we think is best. And certainly that describes, you know, man, the first, I don't know, three, four months of this pandemic when we had no idea. And like, you can't blame anybody for decisions that were made in March, April, May, June of 2020, right? That is true. But there's a lot of things like, the thing is, let's, take COVID-19 as an example when it comes to evidence. We had a lot of interventions back then that we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, right. we didn't buy the seat of our pants. At what point do you require evidence? Right. Uh, <clears throat> and, and do you need evidence for every intervention? So I think what we've seen, I am going to answer your question, but you know, I think what we've seen, if you look at what we still argue about and what we don't argue about, you see the importance of evidence, right? Nobody in their right mind is arguing about the benefit of vaccinations, right? Um, Especially for the highest risk people, absolutely for moderate risk people. And why is that? That's because we have really, really robust evidence on the benefit of vaccination, okay? And then look, let's go kind of to the other side of things, right? Where we do really argue, you know, as crazy it is, people are still arguing about masking in public. People are still arguing about, you know, some of the crazy treatments that were recommended. Um, And those arguments stem from the fact that we still don't know, right? And it's incredibly difficult to counsel people on the risk benefit of certain interventions, whether they be pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic, if you don't really understand the benefits and harms of those indications. Um, So I would say, 
you know, the more evidence, the better. There are some things that are very, very difficult to study. I think we kind of did a crappy job studying a lot of things that we need to know about for, you know, the next five years, the next pandemic, but also, you know, to pat the back of, of a lot of the incredible researchers out there. We've actually had a lot of great research, right? I mean, I think, you know, we understand how vaccinations work. We understand the benefits of, you know, remdesivir, dexamethasone. We've really shot down a bunch of the things that people were hoping would work early on, whether it was hydroxychloroquine or, or azithromycin or, you know, whatever. And those are like real, real, real successes. Um, I wish, oh, and, and I'll add, I mean, something that we had opportunities to study for the last hundred years, um, convalescent plasma, you know, I think finally we come out of this pandemic having a good sense of, at least in this setting, that convalescent plasma doesn't work very well. But there are things that I would love to have seen more research on, and I think there are questions that are still coming up. And, you know, masks is probably part of that. Like, how much does this help? And how long do we need to do this for? And and what are the um, uh, what are the kind of risk measures that we should say? Okay, look, this is where it makes sense to mask. This is where it doesn't make sense to mask. So let me take a couple of examples because I wanna um, I wanna maybe hone in on a couple of things. Um, no one is questioning the um, issue, the benefit of vaccinations. I agree at large. But I think what folks are questioning is maybe four topics. And I would like, again, to ask your opinion in terms of the level of evidence you need for something like this. One is vaccination in kids. So the, yeah, nobody is arguing whether you and I should get vaccinated. Right. I think the argument is maybe kids younger than five years old or five to 11 years old, that is continue to be contentious. <clears throat> Number two, is the number of shots and boosters. You know, is it six? Do I get a shot every six months? Do I get every four months? It seems to me that this, we should be able to study that. Like you could take folks who've gotten three shots and randomize them to four or placebo, I would think. Yeah. Number three is um, uh, infection. Like if I have two shots and an infection, do I need a third one or something? And lastly is the adverse events of myocarditis. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, Adam, it is such a, if, I, if you ever bring myocarditis, you're an anti-vaxxer. So I think vaccines, I agree with you. Uh, nobody questions the benefit at large, but whenever it comes to subcategories, it's very heated. So help me understand as a evidence-based medicine and educator, how do you counsel folks about these four categories? Okay. Well, so I'll, I'll give my caveat up front, right? I'm a general internist. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an infectious disease doctor. I don't sit on vaccine advisory boards. So I'm going to kind of give, you know, A, what I think is common sense. And I don't think anything I say is going to be controversial. And I'm going to talk about, you know, where the trouble comes from, right? So as you say, based on actually RCT data that we have, and actually, man, just based on our experience over the last two years, right? These vaccinations are incredibly effective and incredibly safe, okay? And I think probably, you know, the relative benefit at every age group and every risk um, category is about the same. 
the absolute benefit clearly falls as your risk from this infection gets smaller and smaller and smaller, okay? Um, and so I think on the one side, you have people who are arguing, look, you know, it is critical that every person, you know, Chadi and Adam's age and above, right, get this vaccine, okay? And that's critical. But come on, um, you know, it is so rare that the young get really sick from COVID. You know, it's, it's unlikely that they have long-term consequences from this disease. What's likely gonna happen is they're gonna be exposed, they're gonna become immune, you know, naturally. Um, so they never have problems with this later. Um, and there are very small, but yeah, measurable risks to this vaccine. Um, so that group maybe, you know, should be optional, okay? On the other side, there are people who say, look, the way to beat an infectious disease is to vaccinate everybody, no matter how low risk it is. And look, there are things like, um, you know, varicella, chickenpox, right? Um, I don't know, maybe mumps, right? That we went all in on vaccinations, not because they were wiping out populations like COVID, but because they really did interfere with, you know, life, daily life. And it's reasonable to do that. And it's reasonable to do that without really robust evidence, okay? And I think that's actually kind of a reasonable thing to disagree with. And I actually think the disagreement is unimportant because, you know, it's happening. You know, we now have vaccines improved, uh, approved down to six months old, right? Um, I think there's going to end up being a very nice line of vaccine uptake um, where the people who are at least risk have the lowest rate of vaccinations and the people who are at the most risk um, get, have the highest uptake of vaccines. Um, and that's because people are you know, reasonably good about reading their own risk, right? And understanding um, uh, their risk tolerance. Um, now, I know the group who is most into the vaccine sort of blame the people who say, oh, it's a decision for, you know, the low uptake in that, in the low uptake group. But I'm not sure that it's a completely irrational decision, um, you know, to not vaccinate your kid who's five. How about number of shots and boosters? So Adam Sipu, uh, yeah. you know, you've probably gotten three, maybe you've gotten fourth. I don't know. Um, I guess, I guess the question is, I don't, I feel we're flying by through our pants. Like, do we even know? I mean, do we, do I just go in September and get one? And right. just, I don't know. I mean, so I, I think, and this, this may, you know, may get beyond my expertise, but I, I'm pretty sure as a general internist that, you know, the primary series for COVID is three shots. Okay. Right. And the primary series for a whole lot of our vaccines is three shots. That seems to be the thing, right? We get, uh, Pretty great, good immunity with those first two shots. That does seem to wane, and we seem to get a really nice bump with that third shot. Um, I think right now where we're standing, you know, with our current illness and our current uh, vaccines, is that a fourth shot gives you um, some robust immunity against infection for about six weeks, you know, fairly short-lived. Um, and what all these shots do is not really protect us from COVID, right? It's not putting some sort of miraculous barrier around us, but it's allowing us to not get terribly sick with it. 
this, okay? And this is not absolute. Obviously, there's, you know, breakthrough infections. Obviously, there are people in the hospital who have gotten, um, you know, a full series of vaccines. But overwhelmingly, compared to where we were two years ago, you know, if you've gotten vaccinated, you're going to get COVID and you're not going to get terribly sick with it. Um, and then I think it's looking into a crystal ball, right? Um, and the optimist's crystal ball says this, says that we're going to continuously be exposed to this disease. We're going to continually get infected with this specific coronavirus. And it's going to be like every coronavirus we've ever come in contact with. That Look, our immunity is going to be, you know, pretty good, but not perfect. It's going to be lasting, but not permanent. But it is going to keep us from dying of this infection. And those people will say, I'm done. I'm going to, you know, get a mild COVID infection every couple of years, and it's going to keep me immune forever, and I'm not going to die of this disease. Um, there are others who say, you know, this is a different infection. You know, we have never seen this coronavirus before, and, you know, it's going to keep changing, and it's conceivable that in six months or in a year, it's going to come back in a way that we're going to be back in, you know, March of 2020 again with many people getting very sick. OK, um, you know, I can tell you what, you know, my crystal ball as a sort of optimist says, but there's no reason my crystal ball is more or less right than anybody else right now. I think we're kind of guessing about the future. But but I mean, as a general internist, as an educator, you do yeah. these questions from both sides, maybe yeah. your patients or even the residents and, and the interns. And I think. You know, one way is to turf that to ID, but we all know this bond between the primary care doctor yeah. and the patient is always important. So, so if I have two shots and I got COVID, which is my third shot, do I need a fourth one? Um, so you have not gotten four shots. So don't try that on me, right? Um, I, I, I'll tell you what I say in practice and, you know, nobody should take this as, as medical advice, as we always say. Um, but I tell people that your primary series for COVID is three shots, okay? Uh, you know, yes, I think if you've got an infection, obviously that gives you some extra degree of immunity, but you should get three shots. And that's where we are. So, so one infection does not substitute a shot, what you're saying. Right, right. I think it helps, but I don't think it substitutes. But we have no evidence that it doesn't substitute a shot. That is absolutely true. I mean, what we see, we have evidence that an infection certainly boosts antibodies, um, uh, we have evidence that infections does decrease your risk of serious complications. Um, so I'm a believer in infections. Um, but I think that uh, given what we have, what we know about the vaccines, I really think you got to recommend three shots as a primary series for coronavirus. Okay. Le uh, two other things pertaining to just general things. Um, I'm just thinking of the things I see a lot of heated debate on. And I, yeah. and I think I'm talking to Switzerland. See, you're Switzerland, Adam. Long COVID. It seems to be that word, long COVID, generates a visceral reaction among <laughs> uh, Some folks think it's a completely made up name because we, we don't know what long COVID is. And some folks say it definitely exists. And it does have, um, so, so I guess two questions. Do we have a definition for long COVID? And, and what do you teach residents about or students? Like, I don't know, tell me what you're, what's long COVID? Yeah, um, 
So I think this is very confusing and very important um, because, you know, over the course of this, I've always said that, you know, my patients, um, almost to some extent, there is at least a group of them who really dichotomize, right? There's a group who's like, COVID, blah, you know, nothing, you know, and another group who every time we make progress comes up with something else that they're worried about. So one group is out there like this doesn't exist. And another group is still isolating at home, not because they're worried they're gonna die of COVID anymore, but they're worried they're gonna be exposed, not get sick and suffer the consequences of long COVID, right? I will sort of give my thoughts and I'm not trying to convince anybody of this because as you say, I don't think we really know yet. I certainly think that, and there are people who have either gotten very sick with COVID or who've gotten moderately sick with COVID, who just like people who've had any severe infection in the past, whether it be influenza or mycoplasma or urosepsis, take a while to bounce back from that infection, right? Um, and I don't think that's long COVID. I think that's you know, coming back from a bad infectious disease. And what's remarkable about the last two years is we've had more people with bad in, a bad infectious disease infection than we've had, you know, in my entire career, certainly. You know, that's kind of number one. Number two, this disease is weird. I don't think the disease is weird. I think it's weird because we've had no exposure to it, where, you know, a woman I'm taking care of in my practice now who was mildly ill, you know, at home, no treatments. This is after two vaccines. And she has been, you know, laid low for the last six weeks, terrible fatigue, incredibly high inflammatory markers. And like, this is sort of a recovery phase from infection. Like, again, I'm not used to seeing in my career. Okay. And then there's this sort of long, I think what a lot of people think of in long COVID, you know, the the brain fog, the weird, you know, persistent dyspnea, the persistent lack of smell and taste. Um, I think there's probably a spectrum there. I think there are um, uh, a small number of people who do truly have some long consequence of this disease. I have no idea what the number of that is. I think the like MMWR article, which pitched that at 20% is absolutely crazy. And I say that as an internist who's, you know, now up to between two and 300 of my patients, you know, who've had COVID over the last few years. And I can count on one hand, the number of people who I could say, oh, they, this person still has some persistent symptoms. Um, and I think one of the difficult things about medicine today is, is we've allowed people, and this will get me into trouble, but I'll say it, you know, one of the great benefits of how we care for people is we really let people define, you know, what their illness is, right? This is what I feel. And what I feel is truly real. There are a lot of people who feel terrible, you know? Um, and I don't know if it's because of COVID. I don't know if it's because of living through a pandemic. I don't know if it's because what the world is like today. Um, but I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense to say that anybody who thinks they had COVID or maybe had COVID can ascribe every symptom they're having to COVID. 
I, I, this is so well stated, and I think I'll, I'll echo that this is a, um, it's not, it's not something that we actually um, know uh, what it is very well, but um, a lot of decisions are made on the assumption that we know where it is. And it's a re it's one of those things that if you said like, how do we study this, right? It's nearly impossible um, because, you know, who, who is your control group? And um, there's not a control group. You, you're looking at a cohort study of infected people. And those infected people have to be stratified by, you know, their age and probably comorbid risks, right? And then they need to be followed for symptoms. And symptoms are subjective. And are those symptoms related to disease or not? Why? I mean, this is going to be a morass. Yeah. So in all this, in disclosure, what steered the idea of this podcast was a tweet that you put on, which is the subject of the second topic, which is masking. On June 12, 2022, <laughs> Dr. Adam, I was going on vacation when I Dr. said that. Dr. Adam Sifu <laughs> tweeted the following. Airport filled with people overwhelmingly unmasked. Those that are masked mostly in N95. The wisdom of the crowd, question mark. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. What were you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I thought... Um, you know, I mean, you, you said, you, and, then, and then hold on. Then you said, I am not masking in airports or on planes and will stop with patients the second I'm allowed. <laughs> and uh, I think, needless to say, um, you have a lot of people that responded. One of them mentioned, she said, I'll make sure that doesn't happen anytime soon, Adam Sifu. So, uh, what's going on there? So, the first tweet, which I think irritates a lot of people about me is my favorite tweets are ones that I don't have to express my own opinion, but are often read as sort of a Rorschach test where, you know, how people respond to it is what they bring to it. And I, I was asking, is it the wisdom of the crowd? I, I wasn't saying anything. And I honestly don't, I don't know. I, I did not think it was that controversial. Um, I'm at a point personally where I think the risk to most people um, of COVID, you know, most vaccinated people is very low. I think there are people who are at higher risk, either because they've made the decision not to get vaccinated, or they are the very, very small group of the population who are at higher risk for COVID and will always be. And those people are well protected by wearing an N95, and that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, without going into med my medical history, I am um, probably of moderate risk. Um, but uh, my risk tolerance is fairly high. And so I am actually comfortable, you know, doing as I said. Um, I do think it's very interesting, you know, and, and I think also we should accept people's decision-making, you know, and um, I'm not going to give anybody who's wearing a mask a hard time. Um, I'm not going to give anybody who's not wearing a mask a hard time unless they know they have COVID or they are like otherwise ill and spewing tuberculosis on my plane. Those people should either not be on the plane or should be masked. Um, um, I think, and you probably have other questions. I think as far as what we 
do in medicine from now on, I'm actually quite interested in. Um, you know, we've all gotten very used to wearing a mask, you know, in the clinic, in the hospital, everywhere, right? <clears throat> um, and a, a poll I put up was sort of funny because it was almost 50-50 people saying, you know, we should mask forever after now in medicine because we've all, none of us have gotten a cold for the last two and a half years. Um, and we know that there are outbreaks which like bring down the whole ortho clinic for a week because everybody gets the flu. And why should we go back to that? On the other hand, there are people like, I don't want to spend my entire career with a mask on. And it really does take a lot out of the doctor-patient relationship. And I've felt that. Um, my style is often to broach difficult topics by, you know, sort of stating uncomfortable things with a smile on myself to on myself to try to disarm the conversation a little bit. And that style loses a lot with a mask on. I also take care of predominantly people over 75 years old, half of whom can't hear me very well. And to be covered up and talking like this makes our communication even worse. Um, so I don't know what the answer is to that, um, but I think this is something that could be fairly easily studied to say like, what is the benefit of keeping hospitals masked to a certain level of infection versus not looking at doctor satisfaction, patient satisfaction, illness, death, so on and so forth. What, what? Where do you want to go after me after saying all that? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, number one is why do you think I mean, I mean, the, the kind of question that you asked generated such a visceral reaction and responses, because I got to say, I was a little bit surprised. I think you, I mean, it is the same observation I noticed in airports. I travel a lot and reality is at this point, 90% plus of people in airports on the planes are not masked. And uh, yes, the people who are masked, they usually do wear the proper mask at this point, but 90% plus, and you basically, all what you said, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. But the response was really out of proportion to what I expected. Why is that? Um, I think that on the one hand, and I'm guessing, right? Um, you know, people feel very strongly about what they do, right? About their own sort of beliefs and habits and risk. Okay. And I think people are a little bit more, you know, feel freer on social media to absolutely lay out their feelings, um, you know, many of whom are anonymous. I think also I am either lucky enough or unlucky enough to have a lot of people who follow me. And so people think that if I'm expressing, you know, an opinion, or even just an observation, um, that maybe that comes out as amplifying something which isn't for the, you know, as they see for the for the general good um, and get angry about that. And I think also, you know, there are people who are probably, and I really, you know, I, this is a guess, you know, these are hard decisions to make, right? And a lot of us aren't completely sure about the decisions that we've made because there's not great evidence behind them. And so seeing someone state maybe the opposite, um, you know, kind of gets you. Um, and I should say going into this, I mean, look, masking works to some extent, right? I mean, I've gotten through my entire career without any terrible, you know, respiratory infections, 
you know, wearing N95s into rooms with patients um, when I need to. I've gotten through the whole pandemic, you know, as far as I know, you know, seeing you know, dozens at least of patients with COVID wearing all sorts of masks from just regular surgical masks up front to N95s now without getting infected. Um, I truly believe that, man, for the first 10 months of the pandemic, you know, in my clinic, seeing tons of people with COVID um, who either I knew had COVID at the time or more likely they called me a day or two later saying, guess what, I have COVID. You know, and I was protected because they were wearing a cloth mask or a surgical mask, and I was wearing a cloth mask or a surgical mask. Um, I think in a in a supervised setting like that, you know, masking works. Um, I think what we know is that outside a supervised setting, whether it's a grocery store or a store or a preschool or a movie theater or an airport, the masking probably doesn't work because most people wear their mask, you know, like yeah. this, or like yeah, this. Under the chin, uh, but including my mother, by the way, uh, <laughs> who probably won't be listening to the podcast. So it's good. But I do, I do argue with them. Like why if she goes to the grocery store and right. the, but um, my question is, do you think we can actually indeed study the mm. value of masking? I, I find I, I struggle in how do you, you design the trial? I understand, I understand the concept and mm. the endpoints but it's very difficult to assure that people wearing the mask properly. I mean, it's, it's not like a, a pill you give. You are gonna, how do you, how would you study that? Well, Tony, I think you're asking two questions. I think, you know, if you're talking about community net masking, um, I think what you're studying is an intent to mask, right? You're saying, I think this community, I'm gonna recommend that they mask and this community, I'm, I'm not gonna recommend that. And I think, actually the behavior in the two communities won't be a whole lot different. So the endpoints won't be a whole lot different. And that answers your question. And right, that's what we've gotten from the studies of masking is that no matter what the most dedicated maskers believe, it's not gonna work in the community because we're people, we're not robots. I'm very interested though in healthcare settings where um, you know I have colleagues who if they open the door and their patient's not masked, the first thing they say is, please put your mask on, you know? There are other people who I work with who don't do that, who if they walk in and the patient's not wearing a mask or is wearing it around their chin, they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, and go on with the visit. Um, so I think actually in healthcare settings, you know, we could do randomizations where we say, um, you know, University of Chicago, Rush, and UIC, you guys lock down and go all in on masking, you know, on the inpatient outside and outpatient side of your medical center. You know, Loyola, Northwestern, how you kind of go half measures. And let's see what the results are. I like the, I like what you said initially, intent to mask. I, yeah. I you know, you just do it and just see what happens. This is really interesting. I, I do think uh, it's still to this day. I mean, I still see people walking in the street with a mask on in the air. And, and maybe there's a reason behind it. I honestly don't judge at all, but I, I, I don't know if it's helping or not. And I think where we need to get to, and this is hard. I mean, I try so hard to be super open-minded. And I would certainly never say anything, okay? But inside I think it, right? If I see somebody, you know, a 
young appearing person out walking their dog wearing an N95, I think, what the hell? And it's, you know, a dozen people I see, they're not all on rituximab, right? Um, um, so that's a weird decision. Um, and I have to be fine with that, right? And on the other hand, um, if you're that person out alone walking their dog, non-immunosuppressed, wearing an N95, that person needs to be fine with the person, you know, who's out for a jog, not wearing a mask, because, you know, at this point, I think both ways are a reasonable decision. Yeah, yeah. Well, until you hit Met Twitter. Until you hit Met Twitter, right. Until, which is our third topic. Now, we talked about evidence. We talked about COVID uh, a little bit and, and mass Met Twitter. You've been active on, on Twitter for a while. And... Um, Give me your general assessment of the medical community on Twitter. <laughs> um, I love Twitter, okay? Um, and I think I got onto it originally just to sort of promote a book. Um, I think I've stuck with it. Well, I would say early on, what I got from Twitter is I interacted with a pretty small group of people who shared my interests. And so I frequently found articles that I would not have read had I not been helped out by these people. Um, I feel like now what I use it for is still a little shameless self-promotion, right? I tweet any article or any podcast or anything I write. So feeling like I've worked I hard do, on this. I do, I do like your podcast. I can <laughs> diagnosis. I love and this is, I'm going to promote this, but this is really, it's interesting because for me as a specialist, it actually makes my brain thing as general. Oh, I okay. love it. Good. I, you. You, you know, I, I, I do listen to it. Thank you. S2D, the symptom diagnosis podcast. I'll shamelessly promote here. Great, great podcast. So I feel like, you know, those are things I work on. I want more people to see those. I'm proud of it. So I put those out there. I also often when I'm writing things, if I'm sort of stuck on a question, I'll put it out there because I like this sort of brainstorming that goes on in Twitter. And, you know, I work in an academic general medicine group. You know, most of the people on my floor, there are usually a couple of people here at any one time. Most of them are in clinic, you know, where I'm in clinic, they're here. And so this like widens my circle of colleagues, right? Um, so Twitter's good in that way. And there are occasional days where I have to admit, my wife says I'm crazy when I tell her this, that like if I'm sitting at my desk writing all day and I need a distraction, you know, I'll put something up. I know it's a little bit controversial so I can, you know, have some back and forth with some people um, during the day. I, I think, you know, Twitter is, and I think maybe med Twitter is better than Twitter, um, but it's a fairly you know, inflammatory, dichotomized place. Um, and I put up a tweet, I think this week, which was sort of joking, but sort of true. I often have no sense of what's gonna set people off and what's not. Um, I mean, I don't tweet anything that I think is gonna set people off. Um, I'm not quite as careful as you are. You seem to be an absolute master of like staying away from controversy. Um, because I will often put things up um, that I'm like, oh, this seems pretty benign. And, you know, people will get kind of bent out of shape about it. 
Um, I actually still think for me, Twitter, the, the benefits outweigh the harms for me. You know, I get a lot out of it. And I think I've gotten mature enough over time that I realized that like there are actually whole weeks that I'm like, you know what, I got a lot of work to do or my mental state isn't quite robust enough to, to deal with people yelling at me. You know, I'm not going there this week. Um, do you think, do you think uh, Met Twitter, that's in general, but how about Met Twitter with COVID-19? Do you feel that uh, when you bring COVID-19 to the equation, how do you think Met Twitter handled COVID-19? I don't think we did a very good job. Um, and maybe that's because of how unclear it was what we should be doing, right? Um, I think that upfront, it was helpful because we shared a lot of the data that we had quickly, shared resources, things like that. And I benefited from it because I think like everybody else, I mean, I was freaked out, you know, late March, early April, 2020. Um, I think what's happened though, is that because there are a lot of things which we lack data, a lot of physicians have really been become advocates, you know, on both sides. Um, and when you're advocating for a stance, you need to abandon the nuance and the uncertainty, which is kind of part and parcel to practicing medicine, right? Um, and I think, excuse me, this jump, but, you know, the reason that people like Dr. Oz drive us all crazy is it's very easy to sit there with nobody talking back to you and say this. And on Twitter, you can sort of say this and a lot of the people who agree with you gather around and prop you up and maybe you mute the people who you don't wanna hear from. Um, well, when you're in the room with a patient, I think most of us are just working to come to a workable agreement with that individual about how we're gonna behave and what's right and how we're gonna go forward. Um, and that's lost in this sphere. Uh, I mean, you know, um, it's interesting you bring Dr. Oz. It, it generated a question uh, in my mind. Um, so, uh, you know, clearly me and you have the same idea, uh, the same opinion of Dr. Oz. That yeah. it, but, but, but one thing I would say, the fact that Dr. Oz ran for the Senate on the behalf of the, I don't know if he won the primaries or not, to be honest. He did, he did. And he won the primaries in Pennsylvania, it looks like. And the fact that the Met Twitter community denounces Dr. Oz, which I tend to believe appropriately so, does that mean that us in Met Twitter are out of touch with the American public, with the, Amer with the, with the average man walking on the American street. I mean, here we are, everybody on Met Twitter saying this guy is a quack and he just won the primaries in the state of Pennsylvania. What, what, isn't there a disconnect? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think I could talk for Met Twitter as a whole, but I can certainly talk you know, to my bubble on Med Twitter. Um, you know, I'm like a you know, liberal academic lefty, right? Um, and I try really central, central or centrist. Come on. Right. I, well, I, um, 
Yes, I've been moved to the center because of what's you know happened um, to my people. Um, um, and I try really hard, really hard um, to you know keep my bubble pretty open on Twitter. Um, there are people who I feel like, boy, it would be better for my mental health to unfollow this person or block this person. But, you know, I don't block people, so I can keep hearing this. Um, but, right, I mean, you see what happens. You go to an airport. You see what happens in elections. Um, you see where... Um, either a majority or a large minority of the country stands on issues. And you realize, come on, you know, um, um, we're not speaking for most people. And I guess you can say, well, it's because we're smarter than everybody else, but come on, you know, that's not, that's not true. Um, and it's, I think, you know, it's a democracy. It takes a lot of work to um, understand and not vilify, um, those people. And then there are people who, you know, vilify you for not vilifying the other side. Um, there's a great line from a song from the new Wilco album, which I'll kind of get wrong, but, um, but it's like, if, you know, it's like, how do you talk across the aisle when the other side is crazy and <laughs> something like that, um, which I think is brilliant. Um, um, that's hard. And, I'm and certainly both, not going to answer both, this. And both sides now believe the other side is crazy, which is really right. yeah. But I, I do feel that there is a little bit of, you know, I mean, I'll say this, although you know me, I try not to honestly offer my own opinions, but I do think sometimes Twitter and Met Twitter is out of touch with reality. And I tweeted a couple of times, I said, Twitter is not the real world. And, you know, I mean, examples of this, even, you know, in a pandemic when Omicron is coming, you know, let's just stay home and watch Netflix and order takeout. Well, you know what? Somebody has to deliver the food to your door. I mean, I'm, you know, it just doesn't appear at the door. So, yes, you may be privileged to be able to order takeout. And, but, but, you know, nobody, not everybody can order, you know, groceries and afford groceries and all that. I mean, I think that's really where I feel that our recommendations occasionally are not pragmatic and it's a little bit out of touch with the average person who is maybe not a doctor or a lawyer, you know? Uh, I'm gonna push back a little bit, um, not to say us doctors are so wonderful um, and not to say, hey, don't lump me with the lawyers. Um, but I think one of the wonderful things about medicine is, you know, we, don't have that option, most of us, to stay home and watch Netflix, right? Um, you know, I've, I had two weeks where I saw patients on video, which made me absolutely crazy. <laughs> and otherwise, you know, I've been back with my job, basically my job. And I think it's helped me because it's kept me grounded in, um, what is actually the infection risk? What does COVID look like among people who have gotten sick with COVID? And I think it's one of the things that has really helped me with, you know, as you say, long COVID is that like, boy, you know, 90% of the long COVID articles I read just don't pass the sniff test. You know, it's just not what I'm seeing. And people will say like, oh, geez, you know, Dr. Sifi, you're supposed to be about all about evidence-based medicine. Here you are, you know, spewing anecdote. Well, 
you know, that's, as I said, part of evidence-based medicine is clinical experience. Um, and if I'm reading something that has absolutely nothing to do with my experience, I got to question it. Yeah, no, very good point. And I appreciate you saying that it is true that probably the majority of physicians who were able to, who uh, were able, were frontline workers. I mean, uh, absolutely. My last topic, and you've been amazingly generous. I love talking to you, Adam. It's a lot, a lot of fun. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. Same on my side. It, it's politics. And it's not really, it's my sense is, and part of the reason I'm a little bit more, uh, more Switzerland than you are on Twitter is I feel that Twitter is so heavily engaged in politics, not in policy. Now, I'm not against you. We all need to have our political views, right? I mean, you at some point, hopefully we, you know, you go and vote and exercise your right as a, as a citizen. But I tend to feel that we need as, a phys, as physicians to be focused more on policy and evidence. And I think we mix all of that together. Now, is it, is it perception from me or do you really find the same? And if you do, how do we change that? Because I think it's a slippery slope once we start mixing those. You know, I, and I, and I think the only other time that I've truly gotten into trouble on Twitter was, you know, about this. So maybe you're just trolling me. Um, I'm not, I swear. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think we all choose how we engage, right? And I admit this is, pro like, I'll just say it, you know, I am not an advocate. I advocate for my patients. A lot of people will say, oh, Dr. Sifu, that's, you know, your privilege, you know, as a cis white gendered male, you don't have to advocate. It's just not who I am. I can't do it. I'm crappy at it, you know? Um, but look, we as doctors have an important role, I think, as advocates and politically, right? And if we're not filling that space, someone's going to fill that space. Now, I think probably what you're getting at, which I really do sympathize with, is that we as physicians, you know, still in this society, we carry a ton of um, respect, a ton of privilege, right? And a lot of that is based on, you know, being sort of neutral, data-driven, caring for the individual kind of people, right? And I think there's a sensitivity among some, and maybe it sounds like among you, is that, listen, you know, if we turn into just another, um, you know, policy um, supporting, you know, spokesperson, that we're going to lose some of that respect and some of that privilege. Um, I, I, I'm at a loss about that. Like, I, I, on the one hand, share your concern. I, on the other hand, like, I don't want somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, you know, trying to make policy that affects not only me, but my patients. Um, so I don't know what the right answer. I think the right answer is, is that I certainly hope that people who are, you know, in medicine, you know, caregivers of any kind, if they choose to become advocates, politicians, you know, political spokespiece people, um, that they are really mindful of their profession as well. I guess what I fear is that the political views of someone might 
cloud their policy decisions. Um, and I think physicians, I still would say physicians should be above the fray when it comes to politics, because we are trained, right? When you see a patient in your clinic, they could have completely different beliefs. They could be, you can't judge them. You have to treat them as a patient and understand their views and be advocate for your patient. You may not agree with the views of your patient, but you respect that and you advocate and you act on their behalf. And if you feel strongly about certain political views, I, I do feel that that might cloud some judgment. And I hope not, but that's- Yeah, my- I, you know, I, that doesn't worry me at all. Um, and I think, you know, through a career of, you know, my own practice, you know, being closely involved with a lot of colleagues, both, you know, in the workroom, you know, having a beer on the weekends and watching them interact with patients. I think we are really good at separating that and saying that like, you're my patient. I don't care who you are, you know, I'm going to care for you. And I think that's so, um, you know, such an important part of like our ethics and our code that we do that. Um, and I and I think that anybody who doesn't do that, you know, should truly find another job. Um, and I think that because of what we do and because of how key it is to how many of us like see ourselves, and it's why so many physicians do so badly in retirement because they're like, I've defined myself by you know by this occupation, and then they go into retirement and they're lost. Um, that a lot of people have such strong feelings about what they do that they feel like it needs to bleed over into the rest of their life, into politics and advocacy, things like that. And I, so I worry a little bit about, I worry less about politics going into the exam room and maybe more about when politics comes out of the exam room into politics, how that's gonna affect how we're viewed. And I do remember, by the way, now why you thought I was trolling you because you did, uh, I do now remember, now I'm trying to think, ah, I do remember something you put out there about advocacy and so yeah. on. Uh, let, see, that's what the title of this is, Adam Ste- Sifu Steering Trouble, because you always do that. Um, Adam, uh, um, this is great. I really enjoyed, and I want to let you go back. Hopefully you have some time uh, left for the, to enjoy Fourth of July weekend. But uh, I have to ask you this, is there a book coming for Adam Sifu? So I am working on two things, um, both of which are um, two embryonic, um, if it's okay to say embryonic in the um, post Roe v. Wade decision. Um, we'll find out. We'll find out. Yes. <laughs> to discuss. But I, I actually, I am very excited about both of them, but I think they are both on the um, five to 10 year uh, spectrum. Wow. That long. I see them both as being my swan song. This career. Oh my God. (laughs) But uh, can you share, like, is it book? Is it something like that or more? Or maybe share with time? No, no, no. Man, I want nothing to do with COVID. I can't believe I'm even speaking to you about COVID. Um, No, one is going to be an honest attempt at trying to, um, you know, help with kind of lay medical literacy, which I think is just so critical. Um, The number of patients who I see who are, you know, wise, intelligent, well-educated people whose, whose own health is compromised by, by low medical literacy, I think is an issue. And I'd love to do something about that. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I've 
I've written sort of tons of reflection pieces and have um, spent half my time on service these days telling stories. And, and I'd, I'd love to figure out a way, um, you know, to talk about important parts of the doctor-patient relationship um, yeah. over a career. Uh, I, I love your writing. Amazing. For the, first, uh, for the first idea that you have, I'm actually working on something specifically for cancer. Great. Wonderful. Cancer. So we'll see how we'll that have to goes. talk. Yeah. All right. Well, Adam, this was amazing. This was excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Appreciate it. Shadi, thanks for having me. We'll talk soon, okay? Okay, everyone, thank you so much. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Adam Sifu, for um, visiting with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the effort. Follow him on Twitter and subscribe and listen to his podcast, Symptoms to Diagnosis. It's an excellent podcast, talks about the clinical decision-making into how to achieve to the diagnosis based on the symptoms that the patients usually encounter. And... Uh, uh, please subscribe to my podcast, rate the podcast, write a brief review, visit my website, and always let me know how I'm doing, and send me a direct message so you could get one of the famous podcast t-shirts of Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I let you go, I'd like to leave you with one of the sayings of Sir William Osler. Medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. Until next time. Take care.